Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people and father to that boy. Um, and in mission conference, he did scare us. He did that. He did that. Uh, before we get into the word, I want to recognize all of those young people who are graduating from something, high school, college, graduate school. Please stand. We want to congratulate you and recognize you. Anybody at all? There we go. Yay. Congratulations. Happy for you. I know how arduous it was. Good, good job. Good job. Good job. Good job. Turn with me over to the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at chapter 11. We're going to continue our series on faith. <clears throat> the series upon which we've been is Faith to Move Forward. And the title of the message today is Faith's Offering. Faith's Offering. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testified about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Lord, help as we study your word. Three things on this passage about which I'd like to communicate. One, faith, faith's offering. Faith always does something. Um, and it, 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 faith usually does it in a manner that prioritizes it being first. So faith's firsts. Secondly, faith's offerings stand out. And thirdly, faith always obtains something with God when it's exercised well. Background, Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. They were the sons that were most important to God telling the story, at least continuing the story of redemption. It doesn't mean that Adam and Eve only had these two sons. In fact, there's one other son that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 5 named Seth, and that records three. But remember, they lived 900 years for reasons that I can't go into today about the climate in which they lived, about how sin had not affected everything on the planet like it has today, at least not to the same degree. Um, and 900 years of living would have probably garnered many more children considering that the thing that God told them when he first created them in Genesis 1, through 28 is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So they could have had between four and 500 kids and then those kids could have had a bunch. The, the earth became populated fairly quickly. Now why don't we have all the records of those people? I don't know. I think that the scriptures are basically the highlight reel of redemptive history. Either those who give us examples about how not to live and therefore could somehow disqualify us from entering into the will of God or those who live in such a way that become examples and say, oh, that's how you do it. Not everybody who has been is in scripture. And it would not be wise for us to try to count how old the earth is by the genealogies that we see represented because we're not quite sure how old Adam and Eve were when they got kicked out of the garden. Don't know. There was no reason to count their age until it was time for them to die because they were supposed to live forever. So we don't know how long they'd been in the garden. We have no idea. Um, but we do know that they did have these three because these three help us understand the redemptive story and how it needs to progress from the book of Genesis all the way through Revelation. 
And we see that this is the first offering by man. Cain and Abel. Now, they were brothers. We think they were twins. The reason being, in Genesis chapter 4, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she gave birth to a son. And then it says in the next sentence, and she gave birth again to another named Abel. Generally, if they are separate conceptions, it says again, and Adam knew his wife, or the man knew his wife. And then they conceived. But when there is no second moment, then you feel like first birth, second birth, same pregnancy. Whether they were twins or not, um, it's not really material. I'm just doing what I can to try to help you understand your Bible best. But it does at least give some insight into how sibling rivalry can be stoked when you have two that are the same age and have heard the same message and have eaten the same food and listened to the same music and have grown up in the same house. And yet you sit there and say, my God goodness, what happened to you? How did this one turn out right and this one turn out so wrong? We fed them right. We clothed them the same way. We were the same parent to the same people. But it didn't work out the same way. And every child comes out different. They hear different. They receive differently. And it's important for the parents to understand that they've got to cater their love they have to fashion their love, tailor their love to, the, to the, the orientation of that child. Now, this is not to say that somehow Adam and Eve did something wrong and that Cain wasn't the recipient of the kind of love they should have given. It just is to say that parenting is not easy. I was talking to my daughter, Brooke, the other day, and we were talking about life, and I was helping her. She was asking me some questions. And we were talking about some of the other children in our family. I said, you know... You, you do understand that, that nobody pays me to be dad. But this is the hardest job on the planet, is to be dad or to be mom. Hardest job on the planet if you want to do it right. But there's no money in this. Our joy is, and our fulfillment is to see your progress. That's the payoff for us. But regardless of whether you progress, we need to do what we need to do. Adam and Eve did what they could, but it just didn't work out the right way for Cain. Now, I don't know what the conversations were like, but there had to be some that sounded something like this. Mom and Dad, over there is a, is a, a beautiful spot. I mean, look at all those trees, and the climate seems really temperate. It, it's amazing, and fruit just seems to just pop out of places, even roll out of the garden onto where we are. Every once in a while we get a piece. But there's a huge sword that stands in the way of the entrance. How come? What is that spot? Oh, son, that's, that's where mom and I used to live. It's called Eden. It was beautiful. Better than you can even imagine. I mean, the way you describe it is true, but there is no description that does it justice. It was outstanding. Well, why don't we still live there? Why are we out here? Hmm. Yeah, your mom and I blew it. God told us not to eat from this one tree, and there was a serpent in the garden. It was my responsibility to make sure I guarded. That's what God told me to do, guard and tend 
to cultivate it and to make sure things that shouldn't be in don't get in and make sure things that shouldn't get out don't leave. I didn't do a good job. A serpent came in one day and we were by this tree that God said you shouldn't eat from. And all of a sudden the serpent began talking to us and uh, your mom was there and she was listening. I knew I should have told the serpent to shut up and get out, but his story sounded really interesting. Lo and behold, he convinced her to eat, and I was right there with her, and the, the fruit seemed good, and I ate. Worst decision in my life. Things happened between us that weren't what they should be anymore. It's like I couldn't even see her the way I used to see her. My eyes were messed up, and I saw her in this veil of shame because she had done something that wasn't obedience. Never, we'd never disobeyed, but, but now she looked different to me. And she saw me differently, and I saw myself differently in her eyes, and so did she in her own toward me. Shame just covered us because we knew we had blown it. And so the best thing we knew to do was to try to, to cover ourselves because we, we viewed one another differently. And that view kind of contextualized each of us in the, in the prison of our last offense. So we wanted to figure out a way, how could we see one another differently? So we found these fig leaves, and... We put them over ourselves, but they, they didn't last very long. And then we heard God coming. He used to walk with us in the cool of the day every day in fellowship, and this day we didn't want to see him. We knew how disappointed he'd be, so we hid. And he, he called out, and we couldn't do anything but answer. And he asked us why we were hiding said, did you eat from the tree of which you weren't supposed to eat? And, uh, you know, I'm not proud of it, but I threw your mama under the bus. <laughs> I mean, both sets of tires hit her. It was, <laughs> it was real bad. I, I didn't fess up. I didn't take responsibility. I said, yeah, I did. But the woman you gave me, she gave me, and I ate. It's the worst day of my life, son. We're still struggling with that one, by the way. And um, it went downhill from there because God said in the day we would eat of it, we would die. And though it went downhill, it didn't go as far as we thought. And for that, we're grateful because he was so merciful. He forgave us of our sin, our disobedience. We didn't suffer the consequences for fully. He, he could have killed us at that moment. We could have died immediately. But he let us live. Our God is really merciful. It's not his fault we're out here. It's ours. But he knew something needed to pay, but he didn't want us to pay. So he found an animal that was innocent. The animal wasn't righteous because it hadn't done anything good, but it just hadn't done anything bad. And so I think that's why he got it, because it could qualify as a substitute for your mom and I. And he killed it. That blood was shed rather than ours. And it was, it was painful to watch. It's kind of like a family pet. So something had to die, so we didn't. And God knew that it wasn't just enough to be forgiven, but we also needed covering so we could see one another differently. So when he killed that animal, he took the skins of the animal and placed it on us. Even though things could never be what they were, 
at least they weren't as bad as they are. And your mother and I have been dressed in these kind of garments, and you too, since then. The end product was we had to, to lose our home. So we were kicked out. And that was really mercy because there was a tree of life from which if we had eaten, it would have extended this pain of death inwardly. And I don't know what it would have been like, but to live forever knowing that we would always be sinners was horrible because I don't like the way I am now. So to prohibit us from doing that, he kicked us out. And here we are, <clears throat> trying to make the best of it. Work, you know, it's tough. It's nine to nine. God said that this ground here, it would, it would yield us fruit, but thorns and thistles, not like what we had in the garden. Whew, that was amazing, son. I mean, you, you don't know anything about it, but I mean, grapes this big. Just stunning. You, you could eat a whole meal with one grape. And watermelons like this. And I mean, wow, it was just, oh. And now it's thorns and thistles. And, uh, you know, we're provided for and we're grateful for his mercy, but it's not what we had. And since that time, because since we've left, we haven't stopped disobeying. I mean, we're trying, but we keep doing wrong. The thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I do. And gosh, I'm, I'm working it, but there's something on the inside of me that got birthed when I disobeyed and I can't, I can't manage it. And so what God did for us and killing an animal on our behalf and be, letting that be the substitute for our sin, we now do is an offering to him because we need a substitute because I blew it yesterday and I continually need a substitute. And I'm hoping that he'll receive my sacrifice. Thus, Cain and Abel learned the practice of sacrifice. Now, how I just outlined that narrative is not in the Bible. It's a great story, isn't it? But it's not in the Bible. Somehow or another, those conversations had to happen because it was a carrying on. And what we see in Genesis chapter 4 is the first offering from man to God. The first but we don't think it was the first because Adam and Eve probably did it by way of example. And we see two kinds of offerings. We see a fruit of the ground offering and that Cain brought. And then we see a, a, a firstling of the flock that Abel brought. One blood, one vegetable. Now the material nature of the offerings I don't think had much to do with whether one was going to be received and the other not. I know some commentators I've read say it does. But God sanctified a vegetable offering. In fact, he created an entire feast around offering stuff from the fruit of the ground. It was called the Feast of First Fruits, or later the Feast of Weeks, or later the Feast of Pentecost, whereby at the first harvest of the year, everybody who was involved in agriculture would bring their harvest, the first fruits, to the Lord and offer those to God. In, in, in faith, believing that the rest that was coming in later would provide for them. And God received it. It was an entire week worth of festival in Jerusalem where everybody would come together to thank God for the provision and that he had allowed the environment to produce a kind of rain and climate and sun and soil so that they could produce a harvest that would provide for them. But they couldn't eat the first stuff first. 
They had to give it to God. So vegetable offerings offered well could be acceptable. It says that Cain's offering, though, was not accepted. God rejected it. But Abel's was. And that in Genesis 4, God said to Cain, if you do right, if you do right, will not your offering be received? So there's not, not the thing with respect to whether his offering materially was wrong. Something was wrong on the inside. And we see some clues here about what Cain did and what Abel did. We're going to get to that in a minute. But the primary issue in point one is that faith had a first. Number one, it says that Abel offered to God. By faith, he offered to God. How do you offer to God by faith? How do you make sure that your faith is, is, is inserted in your offering? Well, you, you have to do it in a way that pleases him. Not just makes you happy. So the first thing we know about Abel is that Abel realized, I need a substitute. I know mom and dad have been through this process quite a bit. They've offered all the time. But I need a substitute. Please listen. You need a savior. All of us need a savior. Somebody who can be the substitutionary death for us. Take your whooping so you don't have to. Mankind realized that. Though they couldn't find anybody on the planet to be the adequate substitute because everybody born of Adam and Eve needed a substitute. They were all sinners. Every one of them bent the wrong way and soon manifested how bent they were. Doing the wrong thing regularly. Having to always bend themselves forcibly back to try to do right. Everybody had done wrong. Therefore, nobody could be the substitutionary benefit for anybody else because they had to die for their own wrong. And so animals were the, were the best thing, next, next best thing. I got to take this thing that hadn't done anything right, but it hadn't done anything wrong. Therefore, it could be an innocent sacrifice for me. I need a substitute, Abel would say to himself. And all of us need a savior, every one of us. We need help. And if you don't believe at the deepest core of your being that you need a savior, let me tell you who your savior is by default. You. And you're not very good at that. You can't be your own savior because you have to suffer the penalty for your own misdeeds. You can't save yourself. You can't do enough. You can't think right enough. There are not enough deeds that, that can substitute for all of your wrong. We are all, and I, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you this on a dreary day like today where it's pouring down rain and to add to your difficulty, but we are all criminals. Not criminals in Fairfax County, but criminals before God because we have taken the law of God and busted it so many times, broken it. You can't even count the number of things you've done wrong. And it's not just what you do wrong, it's what you don't do right that you're accountable for as well. How many times you haven't obeyed, haven't done the highest and best. And then if you just, if you, if you want to separate even the deeds or the, the not deeds, the, the intent of the heart. Jesus got so specific about our own accountability, whereby he said, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. True. But I tell you that if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already done it and are guilty before the high court of heaven. Oh, my goodness. It doesn't even anymore require that you do something. You just got to feel you want to do it. 
You who have that person cut you off on the highway. Guilty. All of us. And so we are so guilty. We don't even know how guilty we are. But in order for us to get up every day and feel good about ourselves, we have to compare ourselves with the absolute worst, who we know are the most guilty. So we feel better about ourselves, lest we find ourselves in a pit out of which we cannot get. And so we say, well, at least I'm not Hitler. At least I'm not son of Sam. And we think we are good people. But good is only measurable by the proper standard. And, and, and good is so high that we realize we can't ever be like the best good. And I'm using redundant terms in order to describe something that ought to be self-explanatory. We, we know what the highest good is, and that's God. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? He wasn't saying he wasn't. He's saying, do you know something that others don't? Because only God is good. He's the only one who is. Silence from the rich young ruler. So we know what the good is. We know we can't get there. But we, we try to figure out what good is on the planet. And we realize what good looks like in humanity. And we don't even compare ourselves to that. Whenever somebody tries to describe who they are in terms of their morality or their benefit to humanity or their disposition toward the world, they never use Mother Teresa as the comparison. Me and Mother Teresa, like that, tight, same people. No, because you know she's got you beat. She's got you beat. I don't care how long you live, what you do, she's got you beat. Or Billy Graham. Yet those two people, which are icons of virtue, don't even come close. They still need a savior. Abel said, I know I need a substitute in death. But I don't just need a substitute in death so that somebody can take the penalty for my misdeeds because nothing I do can ever outweigh the balance of my wrong. The scales will never, never level, ever, ever, ever. Whatever I've done wrong cannot be fixed by what I do right. Never. So I need a substitute, somebody who can pay for my wrong. And so he's offering an animal. But he doesn't just need a substitute. He needs something that is acceptable to God so it's a, an act of worship. Not just something that substitutes for him, an act of worship that allows God then to accept him, not just not kill him. Are you with me? So how in the world does he offer something as a substitute for his own death, yet make it in such a way that God says, well done? Well, you have to offer a certain kind of sacrifice. It can't be what you want to give. It's got to be what he wants to give, and you want to make him happy. He's the one that you got to please. So you want to make sure that you offer the thing that's a substitute for your death that makes him happy in the offering. And this is why Abel came and brought the firstling of the flock, which brings me to my second point. Faith's offerings are outstanding. They're unusual. They aren't normal. Let me tell you what most of humanity does. They say, okay, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. Make sure somewhere between 32 and 35, I get the corner office on, on, on like two floors below the penthouse. And I'm going to make sure that I, I make partner by the time I'm 38. 
And then once I do that, I'll, I'll then talk about giving my life to Jesus. But I got to give my first. I've got to offer for me. I got to sacrifice for me first. Let me pay my mortgage. Let me pay my light bill, my electric bill, my water bill, the tuition. Let, 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 let me pay for the, the piano lessons and the dance lessons and the soccer. And then whatever I got left over, I'll then offer to the church. That's the way most of the world does it. When we think about giving stuff to goodwill, do you shop at Nordstrom's first? No? You don't go to Nordstrom's and buy stuff at a three, $400 dress and then say this is going to goodwill? What do you give goodwill? What you don't want. This is the way humanity thinks. They think leftovers. After I've served me, I'll serve God. It says of Cain, in the course of time, Cain brought an offering. Which means this, when he got good and ready, when he felt like he had everything else set and he'd eaten and his family had eaten, now he can bring some to God. In the course of time. And that in contrast to how it's spoken of with respect to Abel. Abel brought first stuff priorities. says he brought the firstling of the flock. It wasn't what they gave. It was how they gave. And this isn't so much about what you give in the offering on a Sunday. This is about what you give God on Tuesday. Does he have your heart? Does he have all of you? Because Abel's offering reflected, God's got me. Cain's offering says, God's got a little bit of my stuff. But he doesn't have me. Abel's offering is recorded in history as being so iconic that God based every one of his offering laws off that one. You bring me first stuff. Don't bring me leftover stuff. Remember, God has no need for your currency. It's not like when you get to heaven that he's got a little place set up for you there and you can upgrade with the money you bring. He's got no need for your currency. What he does have desire of is your heart. If he doesn't get it, he'll be just fine. No need does God have. But he desires it because he sent his son to pay for it. And he wants that for which his son gave his life. That's you. If he gets you, he gets your money. He gets your car. He gets your career. He gets your relationships. He gets everything else. Most people want to hold on to them so they can give God stuff instead. Don't be Cain. You got to give right. Again, you can't just give what you think the other party wants. You got to give what they want to make them happy. (laughs) I've told this story and I'm going to tell it again to my own shame. Second Valentine's Day of my marriage. We had very little money, and I was trying to figure out how in the world to make sure I could provide for my family and bless my wife at the same time. And our vacuum cleaner had broken down. You know where this is going. 
I go to Sears, I think, boy, it's going to be great. I'm a buyer of vacuum cleaner for Valentine's Day. Double up on a couple of things, kill two birds with one stone, set, baby. This is a great idea. I go to Sears, buy the vacuum cleaner. I go to the checkout counter. woman asks me, oh, it's, it's for the wife? Yeah, it's for Valentine's Day. She says, oh, I'm sure she'll love it. I, now, I am so dense. I didn't get her sarcasm. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I'm thinking, yeah, she will. I wrap it up real nice, take it home. Valentine's Day <laughs> rolls around. Here, baby. She opens it up. She's so kind. My wife's, my wife's an amazing human being. She says, thank you, sweetheart. But I thought I had really done something. And, 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 and the response I got wasn't commensurate with what I thought I had done. So it made me think, did I miss something? She said, no, it's fine. I said, oh, I missed something. I said, shoot. (sighs) You want to make somebody happy, don't get them what you want them to have. You get them what they want. God has prescribed how he wishes to receive offerings. You want to make him happy? Do it according to his will. First stuff. First stuff. Proverbs says, bring the first fruits into my storehouse. In chapter 3, verse 9, first fruits. He wants the first because when he gets the first, he gets you. That's what Abel did. And his, Abel, his, his offering was commended as an entire feast called Feast of First Fruits was surrounded by what this man had done iconically. God said, my people won't figure it out, so I'm going to make a specific moment where they can remember and command them to do it so that they will be blessed. Otherwise, they won't be blessed. Things that we find in the book of Genesis, people who just spontaneously began to do the right thing. We see God codifying in the book of Exodus Because he can't find a whole lot of people who will spontaneously just do the right thing. But he wants his people blessed. So he says, I'm going to take what they did. Like Abraham with respect to tithing. Big battle. Should not have won it. Enemy forces larger than his. He beats five nations. Comes back home with all the stuff. Didn't lose one man. Rescued two nations and his nephew. He realizes only God could have done this. Melchizedek. Strange fellow. We're not quite sure who he was. But we know he was the king and priest of Salem, a town nearby, comes out to meet Abraham. Why? Because he can't figure out why in the world he would rescue two nations, Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities. Because nobody thought that those two cities were worthy of being rescued. In fact, when they got taken away, most people thought good riddance. Why? You get to see a little bit of the character that when the king of Sodom comes to Abraham at the end of the battle, he says this, let's make a deal. What bargaining power does the rescued have? Somebody just pulled you out of a 20-foot embankment avalanche. And the first thing you want to say to them when they helicopter and and dig you out is, I got the rights to CNN on this. I got the storyline. I mean, you you talk like that to folks, he needs to stay down there just a little bit longer. (laughs) Just a little bit longer. 
What rice? The first thing you say out of your mouth is what? Thank you. The king of Sodom didn't even say thank you. That's why that entire nation was judged by God. Not for the immorality for which it's famous. They had other issues that were deeper. Melchizedek comes out to Abraham and says, Blessed are you of Almighty God and blessed be God of Abraham. You are stunning. Abram realizes, I didn't do this. I mean, I did it, but God did this. He gives Melchizedek, who represents the priesthood of the world, 10% of everything he brought back. Wow. God said, there we go. That's the right thing. When people experience victory from me that they know could not have been wrought by by themselves, they need to give 10% back to me in terms of thank you and recognition. And so God made a tithing law simply because people wouldn't do it on their own. Same thing with with Abel. That offering there, how he did that, that's it. And that has stood forever. So much so that the writer of Hebrews says, best offering ever. Do it like that and let me tell you what God will do for you. Give your life like that. Give your stuff like that. Let me tell you what God will do for you. You do it by faith. Oh, there are blessings untold about to come to your life. And he says in the end, my last point, faith has the ability to obtain some stuff. It said first he obtained righteousness from God. What I'm about to say is not to insult your intelligence, but please understand Righteousness is not something you can buy at Amazon. Righteousness is more expensive than the entire wealth of the world. You can't purchase it. There is no way you can do good enough to earn it. The only way you can get righteousness is if it's given. Because righteousness is another word for perfection. Because anybody who has done wrong can't ever be right. You've proven you're wrong. You've proven you're a sinner. You can't ever get right. Again, the balances never come to to equal. Your sin always outweighs your good deeds, and you can never do enough good to fix it. Your sin must be atoned for, and usually by your own blood if there's no substitute. So how does God address that in our lives when he doesn't want us to die? A substitute. And the substitute has to be the right kind of substitute. See, the animals had never done anything right. They just hadn't done anything wrong. And so innocence was applied to them. Therefore, they could be a sacrifice in substitution for our wrongdoing. But they can never make us righteous. They can only make us forgiven. Are you with me? Listen carefully. This is why it's important that Jesus came and lived right. See, if he had been sacrificed as a baby, it would have been innocence that was imputed to us. And we'd be forgiven because his blood was pure. He had never sinned. But he lived 33 years right. Never committed a sin. Had the opportunity just like us, but never violated God's command. Perfect. And heaven requires righteousness, perfection, in order to gain entrance. You can't get there with sin. So how in the world are you going to get there if 
you're only just declared innocent. You got to get there by somebody who can give you their righteousness. Are you listening to me? Therefore, Jesus lived 33 years, and not only did he not do wrong, but he did everything right. As a result, he could be the propitiatory benefit. He could be the substitutionary benefit for all of our wrongdoing because he was innocent. He could be the substitute for our whooping. He could take ours. He could take our death, take our beating, and thereby allow us the privilege of being declared innocent, our, our sin forgiven. But because he lived right and did everything according to the will of Almighty God to the T, he could also transfer to us righteousness. And as a result of that, we can appear before God not just innocent and forgiven, but as Jesus appears before God because we are hidden in him. Now it says Abel attained righteousness as a result of his sacrifice. It does not mean that that sacrifice imparted righteousness to him. It simply meant that he was trusting God, looking way down the road, having no clue of what it would ultimately be, but believed that his sacrifice was going to have benefit far beyond what he was doing now, and that God was able to take that which was in infancy and bring it to maturity in his own life by declaring him to be righteous now. Everybody who was in the Old Testament did not have the benefit of looking back like we do upon the sacrifice of Christ and understanding what it was. But it doesn't mean they lived any less virtuous. It doesn't mean they had any less benefit. They looked forward, we look back. Oh, he was declared righteous. Righteousness is that which is given, not earned. It cannot be bought. It has to be given, which means that the only way you can get it is by doing this. No, I'm not talking about lifting your hands in worship and song. I'm talking about surrendering. God, I can't live, I, I can't, I can't live the way I'm supposed to. I've tried. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm pitiful. I mess up every time, either with my mind or my heart or my actions. I'm a, I quit. Please live through me. And all of a sudden, the power of Almighty God comes on you, and Jesus lives on the inside. He takes up residence in your soul. He lives on the throne of your heart, and now you can begin, begin to live with supernatural power to do the right thing. You surrender, and you become the right sacrifice, and that you are giving your life to him so that he can live life through you, accepting the substitute that he gave in sacrifice for your sin. And then accepting the great exchange, which is, <laughs> I don't know, just logically, I don't know why people drag their heels on this. Jesus takes my whooping and gives me right standing. How do I lose? How do I lose in this deal? Okay, you got to die, but you're going to die someday. You might as well do it now. Rather than too late. Now you get benefit. Later you don't. You're going to die. You're going to give up. You're going to expire. Expire now. And God gives you great benefit as a result. Secondly, it says, God bears witness. God testifies about his deeds. <laughs> I mean, if you want anybody talking good about you, it's him. I don't even know what all that means. 
I read my Bible a lot. I've been in ministry for 36 years. I don't know what it means that God testifies about somebody's deeds. But he does it with, with, with Abel. Testifying. Meaning this. Although I don't know it all, I know it does mean this. If you want to do sacrifice right, do it like that. I laid out an example. Make it happen that way. This isn't a 500 level course. We're talking one. This is introductory to college. Not even 101 yet. You want to do sacrifice, do it like that. Offer me first stuff. Firstly, of the flock, Abel offered. Lastly, it says that his sacrifice was so commendable that the man's still preaching. We don't even know what he said. We have no sermons. Except that his sacrifice was so wowing. I make up words. So wowing that he's still talking from the grave. I, I don't know that my life will ever be like that. But I'm trying. I'm trying really hard to figure out how I can sacrifice so well that I drown out with my life those who are reading my eulogy. May you have that aim. May you preach from the grave. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Help us as a people to live life sacrificially and to love you right.